The human torch could not secure a bank loan. Hello, I'm Ron Kuypers, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am the president and a senior member in the philosophy of religion. Uh, we gather friends and members of our ICS community here to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. This semester, we're tackling some big questions. We're asking our guests to talk about the themes of evil, resistance, and judgment as they come up in the course of their work, their studies, and their lives. I'm Danielle Yet, and I am a junior member at ICS. Today, we're talking to Reverend Tira Van Kieken, who currently serves as the pastor of First Christian Reformed Church here in Toronto. We'll welcome Tira to the podcast in just a minute. I think we're talking about ripped genes all wrong. In saying this, I don't want to make a generational rift, but I think the disdain for ripped genes is usually produced among people who grew up knowing what quality clothing was or have limitless buying power. The usual complaint, regardless of who levels it, goes as follows. I think ripped jeans are ridiculous to look at and a waste of money. Why would you buy something that has already been distressed? I was born in 1994. Yes, I am but a wee babe. The 90s are when fashion went full throttle. A trend was emerging not just in a specific style, but in how clothes themselves were designed and put into production. Big fashion retailers would stock fabrics ahead of time rather than having them custom made for specific projects. This sped up the turnaround from high-end runway to accessible knockoff to the extent that we are now only made to wait a dozen or so days before we see something in a runway show or on TV until we can find it in our own stores. Now, new styles appear in box stores every week rather than the traditional four seasons, a dizzying dynamism that whips us into a frenzy. Trying to balance quality and price across the offerings in dozens of stores will leave even the most conscious consumer stressed. Good luck if you then want it made out of material other than plastic. One might be tempted to respond by saying, well, if you don't shop by trend, you won't be affected by this, which is not strictly true. I, somewhat of a clothing minimalist, or at least a very careful purchaser, I'm only likely to have one to two pairs of jeans in my closet at a time. Even if I'm not constantly buying new jeans to make sure the cut or color is in vogue, I'm still forced to buy what is affordable to me, a grad student and a newlywed. Because of the success of a few particular brands, which ushered in an era of fast fashion, many other brands, even legacy brands known for quality, have increasingly kept cutting corners to increase profit, so that even saving for a higher quality pair of jeans is not going to guarantee longer wear. 
Many legacy brands that have stayed the course are being forced to close, their clientele either unable or unwilling to pay their prices. The problem I find with most jeans today is that they are too flimsy, either because of the reliable cotton being diluted by artificial fibers and stretch material, or because the stitching is poor. I never get to the point of my jeans being well-worn and well-loved enough that I can wear through the knees. And sure, I'm learning to mend and shop better, but it puts me in a position of sympathy for those who want the worn-in, distressed vibe. When I was born in 1994, the fashion industry was already on a collision course, helped along by people who, unlike me, were adults and not babes in arm. It was the result of not one or even two generations of buyers or manufacturers, though the penchant for artificial fibers and easy wash material distinctly flavors the 50s, 60s, and 70s. None of us are to blame, and all of us are. It was the result of economical and political processes which stretch back further than anyone still alive on Earth and helped along in every generation. Me and my contemporaries are probably implicit in ways that are new and distinct from our parents, but we found ourselves 300 pages into this history book and not in the introductory chapter. I, along with anyone younger than me, had an ice cube's chance in hell of escaping the burning smother of acrylic or polyester. And it's not as simple as us just wishing to purchase better. The farmers and weavers, along with their milling equipment, which might have 20 years ago proved our salvation, are gone or silent, but for a few textile prophets crying out in a synthetic wilderness. True, those prophetic voices are crying louder and louder, warning of economic and environmental collapse, and many people more ingenious than I are suggesting new possibilities all the time, or doing the hard work of restarting crucial sectors of the textile industry, often sacrificing financial security for them and their families to make those crazy dreams reality. What was I talking about? Oh yeah, ripped denim. I don't feel like there was ever a time I or my friends could have purchased jeans that wore so sturdily that they became distressed before disintegrating beyond the point of a repair job. You can entirely forget it if you're plus-sized, unusually proportioned, or need adjustments to accommodate a disability. I think buying ripped jeans shows a certain nostalgia for something we haven't been able to experience that of having our clothes be so well-made that we get to love them and repair them. We want to enjoy a certain materiality, a connection with our clothes, not for the purpose of venerating them above the immaterial, but for their sensory pleasures, their aesthetic possibilities, and for the opportunity to use our blessings carefully and thankfully. To do what we are permitted to do in other realms of our created life, to participate in responsible and meaning-making ways with the creation around us. Having convinced myself that ripped jeans aren't a sign of the moral degradation of the youth, at least in the way it's commonly described, I'm still not going to rush out and buy stonewashed jeans with gouge marks along the knees and thigh. Too many companies are capitalizing on this spiritual material void to sell a fantasy, either nostalgia for that time when clothing was well-made enough to be part of a long diligence on the part of the wearer, or because it can sometimes pejoratively fetishize a lower-class aesthetic, that of laborers who put in a full day of physical work. We probably have to ask ourselves the same challenging questions about modern minimalism. What does it fetishize? What does it celebrate? And what does it make possible? I'm not asking for you to embrace ripped jeans either. I'm just asking for an end to snap judgments, an increase in careful attention to historical norms, and the generational disconnects which are the result of material change as much as cultural change. In even fewer words, I am asking for thoughtful compassion. Go ahead and encourage your designated millennial today and maybe pass on any skills for making and mending you haven't remembered to yet.
For our second segment, we at ICS are reckoning with the problem of evil, exploring possible modes of resistance, and discerning moments of judgment as a community. So we're asking our guests to talk about how these issues intersect with their work and lives. Today we're joined by Tira Van Keegan. Tira serves as the pastor of First Christian Reformed Church in Toronto, where a handful of our faculty and students attend, including my co-host today, Ron Kuypers. So Tira, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. We are glad to have you. Uh, I am personally glad to meet you in the flesh after hearing so much about you. <laughs> um, so first things first, uh, we'll just maybe ask you to tell us a bit about yourself um, and about how you kind of discerned your call into becoming a pastor uh, in the CRC in particular. Uh, and then from that, maybe also tell us uh what you feel able to contribute both to your denominational context uh, and your context here in like North America as a church, as a pastor. So. Well, that's not a small question. <laughs> <laughs> we are not about small questions. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily I've been thinking about this one. So um, yeah, so I'm from Edmonton, Alberta. I grew up attending a Christian reformed church, though both my mom and my dad come from different denominational backgrounds and uh, different um, interesting paths that brought them to the Christian Reformed Church. Um, they chose the Christian Reformed Church because of Reformed theology. They're very thoughtful people, and uh, they really loved um, just just the beauty of a Reformed worldview and what that meant for them in covenant and covenant for their children. And um, the community that we were a part of was, was really wonderful, the community I grew up in. So I was absolutely formed by a really tight-knit community of my church in Edmonton. Um, My parents are still incredibly good friends with people they met uh, in that church experience. Um, I was pondering um, my call in light of some of the questions that this podcast is posing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have a really great story I want to share. Oh, please do. (laughs) So when I was a kid, I would say that I kind of wore my faith like another trait. Um, I was blonde. I was from Edmonton. I was a Christian. It was kind of just part of the package deal. And I went to church on Sunday because that's what my family did. And um, when I was 17, I spent a summer in Malawi. And it was kind of an interesting experience. It wasn't an organized mission. It was a mission trip. It was... um, An uncle uh, through marriage who had one of his nephews was a doctor working in Malawi and he was going for the summer to work on this small little community development project in northern Malawi. And I decided for some bizarre reason, seemingly at the time, um, that I wanted to go with him. So I spent eight weeks in Malawi and experienced unbelievable my faith was just shaken completely. I, I showed up as a 17-year-old with absolutely no context to just the poverty. Yeah. Um, and also, it was 2000, and uh, 40% of the population of Malawi reportedly had AIDS in the year 2000. It's mm-hmm. a much better statistic now. but um, And just trying to understand you know, my, my wealth and my experience n- n- in no way prepared me for what I was experiencing. And um, there was really no frame of reference for it for me. And I, I realized, this sounds so extreme, and I was just 17 years old, but I realized that I needed to believe in a God who was going to fix Malawi 
And if I didn't believe in a God that was going to fix Malawi, then I believed in nothing. Mm. And so I think that that for me was such a huge moment. And I don't think I realized in Malawi. I think it took a little while to sort of process that experience. But I I met beautiful people who were happy and, and uh cheerful and laughing and adorable children and you know these beautiful people who were hopeful about some kind of future where things would be made right um so for me that's a really foundational moment of my faith that i believe that god is putting things back together that we have hope in a new heavens and a new earth when all will be reconciled and all brokenness will be put back together and Mm. so that's a huge part of my faith it's a huge part of my call to ministry and also just happens to fit the topic today. <laughs> Convenient. <laughs> Conveniently. So, But then the rest of my story is, you know, um, a little more uh, me struggling to figure that out, right? You don't, mm-hmm. don't, I didn't have like a full epiphany uh, in Malawi, but I came back and I went uh, after high school. I, I spent a couple of years traveling. I worked in Scotland. I worked mm-hmm. at a Christian outdoor camp, worked with kids that were brought in from Glasgow, which was a very low income uh, communities. And it was a really, really awesome experience. Uh, I thought for a minute I wanted to be a teacher. I went to the University of Lethbridge to study education, realized that wasn't my path. <laughs> so it did take me a little while to sort of figure out that ministry was the place for me. Um, so when I graduated, I had a history degree and realized that I spent most of my time in the church. I was a worship leader. I was a high school youth group leader. I was a junior high youth group leader. I was very good friends with the youth pastor and his wife and their kids. And I thought, oh, I, I think maybe I'd like to go into ministry. And once I decided that that was maybe where I wanted to go, I just got an absolute cacophony of yeses. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone in my life was like, oh, my gosh, yes, do that. That's what you should do. Um, so then I attended Calvin Seminary uh, and became an ordained mm-hmm. Minister of the Word in the Christian Reformed Church in North America. Were all the Christian Reformed issues and discussions about women in office, was that all a thing of the past when you decided you wanted to pursue that path? Or were <laughs> there still those kinds of obstacles in front of you? Um, yeah. So um, I would say the generation of women that came t- 15, 20 years before me really made the path. Okay. But it was quite narrow, and it is still quite narrow. So I think myself and other women, we're trying to widen the path of what it looks like to be a a female pastor in the CRC. So to start with, um, throughout my childhood and and even my early adulthood, I had gifts for ministry that nobody mentioned. You know, nobody said, wow, gee, you're a great public speaker. Maybe you'd be a preacher because I'm a girl. So that wasn't an option or oh, gee, you really love to travel. You should be a missionary, not, you know, work for the Christian Reformed Church in North America. So, (laughs) but then once I suggested it, it was a lot of beautiful, wonderful people said, oh yeah, that's great. Like good choice. Right. Um, But it was, it wasn't something anyone ever suggested to me. Yeah. Ever, ever. No one person ever said you should go into ministry. Um, Can I ask a question about your time at the Office of Social Justice? Yeah, for sure. Because a bit of the background from our point of view is from 2013 to 2015, we partnered with um, the Office uh, for Social Justice and the Christian Forum Church on a project. Really, it was, um, at the time, it was Steve Vandehoof, who's an ICS alum, Mm -hmm. came to me when I became the director of our research center and said, could we do something? Because he was the social justice mobilizer at the time. So he came and said, you know, we, the Christian Reformed Church sponsors a lot of, uh, at the ministry, at the, at the ministry level, there's a lot of, um, 
ministries that do social justice work like World Renew, Office of Social Justice, Committee for Contact with Government or Committee for Public Dialogue. And he said, but we have, um, at least in Canada anyway, he said, we have a, we, we don't quite know how people in the pews feel about the work of these ministries do, if they understand it, if they support it, if they know everything that's going on, there seems to be a disconnect and they wanted to explore that. So we did this two-year project called Justice and Faith in the Christian Reformed Church. And we got some money from the, the Social Sciences Humanities Research Council. And we interviewed people and we did a survey and then we developed a play that mirrored this thing. I think you were part of an event in Toronto where the play was performed. Yep. And so I'm just wondering if you can reflect from your experience being um, sort of a member of the Christian Reformed Church, a pastor in the Christian Reformed Church, and then also involved in these social justice ministries in the Christian Reformed Church, if you, what sense you have of the denominations um, heart for social justice or if there's um, tensions there or anything along those lines? Yeah, great question. Um, so having worked with the OSJ and the CCG, I'm going to use their... Acronyms. Acronyms, thank you. <laughs> just lost the word. <laughs> um, this is something we talked about a lot, and I was part of that Just Faith project on several right. levels. I think that the Christian Reformed Church is a very thoughtful denomination that struggles with how to engage in the political sphere in changing times. I think that the conversation is important. Um, the conversation between two sides, you know, one side that says our job is to be activists and to get involved. And the other side that says, no, our job is just to, you know, preach the good news in church and convert people and make disciples. Um, I'm definitely a, a both and, you know, we need to uh, preach the kingdom of God in its fullness and bigness and, and wholeness and reconciliation. And that does mean engaging in political action often um, and standing up together as a group to to say, you know, this is not right. This is not fair. I, I do think we need to be careful. Um, we need to be careful that we're not um, speaking about policy. Actually, I, I really had this great experience recently. I'm going to name drop another Christian Reformed Church pastor, uh, Meg Janista. She's a pastor at Washington, D.C., uh, CRC, and she just spoke at the Lester Randall preaching conference at York Minster Baptist. Mm. And she began her keynote address, which was brilliant, with the gospel is political. So she talked about the gospel being political and prophetic and, and that we need to speak into um, we need to speak into politics in in an, in a thoughtful and biblical way. But then she also said, you know, but we are not necessarily talking about policy. And so we need to see these sort of big picture, um, big picture things like what what is the Bible trying to say about what it means to be community? What does the Bible say about government? How do we engage it? But also recognizing that the Bible doesn't tell us what the speed limit on the road should be. So, you know, let's be careful that we're not overreaching. A and that dynamic of um, thoughtful engagement, I think, is really important. Uh, and, and God and Jesus are not on any political party. So whenever you've baptized one political party as the one that Jesus would vote for, then I, we've misstepped there somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that that's, that's an important thing as we engage i i, I am obviously very pro engagements mm -hmm. um but uh, but yeah it's it's a it's a challenge uh but there's i think 
in your position, what comes to my mind is that you have a very practical concern with not just saying like, oh, you know, we should be able to think about these things or like, I wish, you know, people would learn how to like engage with each other, right? Like you're in a position where very practically you are trying to get people to actually do those things. Um, so I would like to hear if you have any kind of like insight into in your own, in your, in terms of your own practice and role and all these things, um, how actually getting people to engage is possible. Yeah. Um, great question. Great because I also think sort of big picture, the role of the pastor and the role of the church is also to encourage the rubber to hit the road, right? Mm -hmm. How do we, we can have these great ideas and these, you know, this great theology and all this great talk, but what are we doing with it? How do we do the doing? Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's really the, the challenge I think of, of, Christian faith, you know, living it out. Um, one big thing for me that I was thinking about as I was coming here today is the idea that we've been talking about sort of big picture brokenness in the world. I also am a believer in personal brokenness. I think mm -hmm. each individual person is a little bit broken. So we can call that the sinful nature, um, can call that uh, tainted by evil, whatever terminology you want to use, but we have the capacity for 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 doing evil and and sinning against the Lord. So, I think that both are tied, but they are also separate. And I think we need to look at both. So, yes, there are systems, but then there are our activities in those systems, um, our own bad behavior, our own choices to do wrong when we should be doing good, and also our own choice to not do anything. Um, so one thing that we do every single week at our church is we have a prayer of confession and assurance of pardon. Mm -hmm. So yes, God loves us and forgives us and wants to make us whole, but we kind of have to keep coming back to remembering that we aren't there yet and it's a process and we've been justified by Christ, but we are not sanct we're in a process of sanctification. And that is continually coming back and saying, um, I'm sorry for the things I've done that I shouldn't have done. And and I'm sorry for the participation that I have done in systems that are broken. And and then also in our traditional prayer of confession, it says, for the things left undone, mm -hmm. for the activity I should have done, and I just stayed at home. You know, you're sitting on your couch and watching television, you think, well, I didn't sin today. <laughs> yeah, but what should you have been doing? Right. Yeah. Why weren't you doing those things? Um and I think that that also that confession and assurance is a beautiful time because it's corporate. We mm -hmm. we talk about it as we's. We have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need to come to this. We need to touch base. And and I believe God through Christ is there every time saying, I forgive you. I love you. Let's keep moving together. And like just a constant grace of I forgive you, I love you. And just remembering that we need that every day and we need that as a community. And then I think that's that's the place we start um, yeah. moving forward. So um, what is the vision of the kingdom that we're given in the Bible and how do we live into that? And what does that look like for our community? And I'm just going to talk about how much I love the church for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> for CRC is just such a lovely group of people that try so hard to include everyone. And we're not perfect. We don't always get it right. 
but man, it's a diverse, mm-hmm. it's a diverse community. It's a quirky community. And I, I just love that that's um, something I get to be a part of. I love the intergenerational nature of it. Um, the kids screaming in the middle of the service isn't always fun, but it's also- I got to stop. The kids love Pastor Tira. I've never seen kids take to a pastor- <laughs> in my life, but you literally have them eating out of the palm of your hand because you have, a, you have a bowl them. of candies in your office or whatever, and they know this. It works. But she gets <laughs> she gets right down on their level. They they approach her just, uh, it's like Jesus said, let the little children come unto me, and you're, yeah. they completely know that they're welcome to yeah, yeah, yeah. interrupt you talking to an adult, and you'll get you'll come right down to them and start talking to them, and you treat yeah. them the same, and I think they they feel that. So anyway, that's yeah. a good side. But. Well, and I think I made a joke about them screaming in the middle of the service, but just I want them to feel like they're they belong in the sanctuary they belong as part of us and yes you know we're going to encourage them to sit still and be quiet but they're not all capable of that and that's okay so you know making space for that and and it's a good thing like it's very but it's noticeable right oh yeah kids feel a lot more um part of things i think like we were always i remember as a kid it was always you were shunted off or you were like did kids things and there was a big kind of gap or gulf between the kids and the adults or whatever but um well, yeah. and I have to say, before we started recording, we were joking about calling me Domine. Ron oh, yeah. was joking about calling me Domine. <laughs> and uh, the thing about the Domine, so traditionally in Dutch, the Domine was was different and yeah. set apart and, you know, came to, to bestow wisdom and theology. Sort of the resident theologian is often what pastors are jokingly called. Um, maybe not jokingly, maybe quite seriously <laughs> yeah, called. Yeah, yeah. But for me, that's not my vision of community. And and how do you build community? You you have to be on the ground, and you have to. Um, I don't I don't want to be the domine with the kids. I just mm. want to be Pastor Tira, who sits on the floor and gets jumped on quite regularly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I bribe them with candy, and it's great. Um, that ties into a question that I had. Um, you were mentioning the corporate aspect of like confession of guilt, but that not overshadowing the individual sense of like brokenness and all these things and vice versa. Like yeah, the, yeah. those two things are held together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just like to hear uh, what, if any insight you have on helping parse those things out Um if it's possible in terms of the themes that we're talking about to judge um, when it is kind of a bigger issue, like a, you know, cosmic scale or like structural kind of thing that's going on uh, when evil happens Mm -hmm. or when, you know, it's more of a kind of individual culpability at play. do you have tools for helping parse those things out? Sure. Um, I will just go straight into um, some of the main issues that the um, Center for Public Dialogue deals with, because mm-hmm. that those are the ones I'm most well-versed on. So one of the two issues that were the two major issues during my term, they've sort of changed it a bit and added a few more things recently. But when I began, and, and two of the issues that are close to my heart are um, refugee justice issues, Uh, And then also indigenous education reform. Those are two issues close to my heart. Mm. So refugee justice issues is a great example. Um, Here's a Christian idea that humanity bears the image of God. We're all in this together. That very simple term 
if you can put that on the global refugee crisis and stop thinking about them over there and their problems and, you know, that country that's falling apart and what are we going to do with those people and start thinking about us and our problems and the desertification of arable land and uh, internal strife in Syria and how are we going to address these larger issues that aren't going to go away. And these are people who bear the image of God that need help. Um, so so for me, that's that's big picture, big picture, uh, biblical themes that we can see play out in an, in an international stage on a very specific issue. So then individual behavior, what does that mean to be the church in a world that's experiencing an un, unforeseen and unduplicated, I'm using the wrong words, refugee crisis? Mm. It's massive. So how do we personally engage in that? And, and where are we going to find our place in that? Is that donating money? Is that assisting refugee families specifically, which our church has done and is doing? Um, or is it just supporting agencies in Toronto that are helping with, you know, settling people in in um, finding them housing in Toronto? This is a huge problem in the city of Toronto. So how do we engage in an issue knowing that, like, each one of the people that arrives in Toronto and has nowhere to sleep um, from a war-torn country is carrying the image of God that mm -hmm. just determines all of our behaviors. And then here's an, an leaving it undone. What if we don't do that? What if we just close our eyes and say it's not about us or we don't have to engage? I mean, that's a choice that we can make, but I, I don't think that that's the right choice in this situation. And that's not about policy. That's mm -hmm. not about political engagement at all. That's just like just the sheer fact that we have so many refugees walking around on the streets of Toronto. How do we be hospitable to them? Mm -hmm. um, so if you want to talk about policy and that kind of thing, that's a separate thing. And I'm going to brag about World Renew and the Center for Public Dialogue because they were part of an effort, an advocacy effort. Um, so when refugees come to Canada, they're flown here by the Canadian government if they have refugee status and they're accepted as UN refugees. Uh, and their flight is then a loan. They have to pay that loan back to the Canadian government with interest formerly. And the, the Christian Reformed Church with other people and other agencies advocated to members of parliament saying, how, how are refugees going to pay you back and pay interest? People that have, you know, just experienced crazy amounts of trauma are coming here, recovering, trying to get a job. Trying, like, we know what the workforce is like no. in Toronto. It's very hard to get a job above minimum wage, and they have to pay interest on these loans. We, I mean, it would be great to see the Canadian government say, well, they don't have to pay anything back, but they don't have to pay interest anymore. Uh -huh. So that is right. a real advocacy win for yeah. us. I think that that's something to be very proud of, that the Christian Reformed Church was part of that and recognizing that this, this is something we can try to advocate for. So that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. The other issue is um, Indigenous education reform. Um, indigenous people in Canada face huge hurdles and challenges that are complex and uh, challenging, and lots of people have difference of opinions. And Indigenous people in Canada are diverse, and their experiences are vastly diverse across this country. And they're diverse nations and diverse language speakers. It's it's not a homogenous thing. Um, so I think it's important for an agency like the Center for Public Dialogue to find a way in. What's the thing that we can do or say or help? What? How do we? How do we engage this in a way that is helpful? Um, schools on reserve. A 
across Canada in different levels and depending on the province are chronically underfunded. Mm-hmm. So that's that's just bad. Right. <laughs> you know, we need to educate kids and give them a chance. Um, and, and that's just such a that's just it's a really um, it's a really nice way into a very complicated issue. Uh, so there's that's the chosen conversation. And, and I think that's beautiful because, again, image of God carried by every person. How do we speak into a, a complex issue? Um, and, and how do we do that? The Center for Public Dialogue has amazing, amazing connections with um, different different um, Aboriginal Indigenous groups and different political groups. So so they're doing this with with partners that mm-hmm. are are um, the affected peoples. And I think that that's a really beautiful thing as well. Mm-hmm. So could you speak maybe a bit, bit more to that in terms of how um, a church or denomination becomes involved in this kind of advocacy work, given the legacy of the Christian church in the uh, you know in the residential schools and uh, all the things that have come out in the, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, because um, I think it is a it's a real it's a time for uh, churches to um, repent mm-hmm. of a lot of abuse, mm-hmm. and yet at the same time, this there's situations of injustice that churches should be speaking to government about to redress, like the underfunding of uh, uh, you know schools on, on reserves, but also you know lack of clean drinking water on a lot of them, all these kinds of issues, right? So do you have any thoughts about how a church now in this time, in this context, has to position itself in that conversation? Yeah, so the Christian Reformed Church a few years ago, three, three or four years ago, actually did present a synodical report on the doctrine of discovery, Mm. which I think is just a a beautiful piece of research um, not the doctrine of discovery, the synodical report. Yes, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Important clarification. <laughs> I think the the report on the doctrine of discovery, and it was um, coming to terms with our theological heritage as Christians and as North Americans, and sort of the the basis by which we engaged uh, Indigenous people to start with. Um, in the recommendations, there were some calls to repentance and reconciliation, which uh, it, it was a challenging situation. I, I think part of our binationality is part of the challenge. Um, the Canadian experience and the American experience is different, and we're also at different places in the reconciliation journey. Um, so I, I think that that has affected uh, how that was received. Um, but but I think it, it does address some of those bigger theological and philosophical ideas of what we have done in the past and ha- how we move forward from that. I'm hearing you or listening to your previous answers say something like the approach has to be much more dialogical and a listening kind of oh, approach. Oh, yeah. Than, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the, the residential schools, horrible, but um, there is uh, in their um, setup, there were some good Christian intentions behind their development, you know, mm-hmm. but it was done in a very um, paternalistic way, obviously, mm-hmm. and it was imposed on people without their consent. So I'm wondering if uh, if there's like lessons that we've learned so that, you know, we don't repeat these kinds of... Uh, I think that's a part of my personal journey too, right? is um, there's a verse in Proverbs that says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. And I thought, oh, that's great. Like, that's my job. And then I realized 
why can't they speak for themselves? Right. Yeah. I, maybe I don't need to speak up. Maybe I need to be quiet and make space for other people. Like there's a much bigger question there, right? Like mm. let's stop telling indigenous people who they are and what they need. Let's start giving them space to talk about who they are and what they need. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that I've really learned from the Center for Public Dialogue. And uh, my Kogaturp is the director, and he he's just a real epitome. Shout out for ICS, also an ICS alum. <laughs> so many good people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he deserves a real shout out. Uh, yeah, he's a good guy. He is a good guy, and yeah. he's really taught me a lot about that and um yeah i think i think that's it's also part of my vision of the kingdom that everybody has a place everybody has a place at the table everybody has a voice and um sometimes you have to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and tell everyone else to be quiet so that they'll listen <laughs> but sometimes you need to be quiet um can i say one more thing oh yeah can i drop one more bible verse oh yes I wanted to talk about Isaiah 40 because there's this line I, that the mountains will be brought low and the valleys will be raised. This is, again, this vision of Isaiah of the future, I believe. And again, we think, well, gee, that's great. The valleys will be raised, but also the mountains will be brought low. And so I think sometimes when we have power and privilege, we have to realize that justice means a leveling and that means a giving up of some of our power and privilege mm -hmm. so that the valleys can be raised mm -hmm. and I, I think that that's um that's a real challenge for the established mainline north american church sometimes is we you, want the valleys to be raised yeah. but we don't want the mountains to be brought low And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we are watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So Danielle, what's your pleasure? Well, I have been watching a lot of TV and movies lately, which is just my pace of life, I guess. Um, and I realized, what is it? Disney plus is, I guess is what it's called has come out recently and everybody's all excited about it and whatever. And I have no plans to get it, but, uh, I realized one of my actual pleasures is another movie. It's, I guess it's a movie streaming service technically, um, called canopy spelled with a K that you have access to through libraries. So school libraries, many school libraries will have it, university libraries and public libraries. So I access it through the Toronto Public Library and they have a really great selection of classic films and documentaries and uh, like more indie art house films that never quite make it to Netflix um, or stay in theaters for very long. Uh, and like a lot of foreign films, which is really good. Uh, so and you it's can free. use it to watch the like Criterion edition of uh, they have a lot Robert Bresson's Diary of a Country Priest or something like that. I don't think they have that particular okay. one on there. They do have Bresson on there though. And they have a lot of like those 
you and your Paul Schrader throwback in the transcendental style. They have right. a lot of transcendentalists that he talked about talked about uh, on there. So they do have they do have that. Yeah, I'm gonna check that out. Yeah, it is it is worth a check when scrolling through Netflix with the well known frustration of all these movies and I can't find anything to watch uh, hits you hard. Oh, and speaking of Netflix. Um is this your I, pleasure? Well, I was going to do a different one, but now that you made me think about Netflix going, like, because it's it often disappointing with Netflix, right? Like, uh, if a comedian you like comes on, then you might watch it or something like that, watch their special. And that's, um, it doesn't seem to be like a very rich archive. Yeah. <laughs> and, and things aren't on there very long and they're gone again. But one of uh, a pleasant surprise I had was a Dutch film that was made in 2018 called The Resistance Banker mm-hmm. was on Netflix. And my sister Jolanda told me about that. And when she was uh, visiting me in Toronto, uh, we watched it together. And it's this amazing story um, about a Dutch banker during World War II who basically um, found a way to clandestinely fund the entire Dutch resistance to the Nazi uh, uh, party that was ruling Holland at the time and the actual uh, German army. Going so far as to uh, perpetrate what would have been bank fraud in order to um, just raise incredible sums of money to fund things like a railway strike and pay the workers while they were on strike and things mm. like this. So you just it's just another one of these stories given our, uh, our general theme of evil resistance and judgment. Very on theme, yes. Of someone who recognized that their place in society allowed them for possibilities of resistance that they could seize with, uh, and it was just really interesting. Um, you know, a lot of struggle between him and his wife about whether he should do this and how much of it he should do and how far he should go. And, you know, there's one really memorable line where the wife says to him, she's like in Dutch, yeah, ik wil it niet. You know, she says, I don't want this. Which says, but you have to. It's, mm. your, du- it's your duty, it's your plicht. <laughs> and uh, so it's just, uh, you know, it's it's really well done. And, um, and it was interesting because it's a true story, but it was kept under wraps. Because what he did to the banking system during the war, they didn't actually want people to know um, that those vulnerabilities, I guess, <laughs> existed in their bank, the ones he exploited or whatever, and um, and and that and that you know basically uh, that you know bank fraud took place. They wanted to kind of um, they didn't want to publicize the story. They kept his story secret, and it wasn't until uh, I think 2010 or something that now he has a statue in Amsterdam honoring him and, and the sacrifice he made. How um, did it get out? How did what? How did it get out in the end? That I don't know, actually. That would be an interesting thing to yeah. um, to look up. But uh, yeah, I guess I could say that that was, um, that was a nice surprise. I didn't know about the movie until my sister told me about it. And then we watched it. And it was just one of these things like, wow, that was really cool. I'm glad I know about this now. That's it for our show this week. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti. You can follow my co-host as at Kuypers Ronald. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. 
You can also subscribe to us on Google Play Music. Oh, good to know. For the Android users out there like myself. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. 